So this morning as we, we, we finish up this third week in Proverbs, wisdom in a wayward world, we're reminded that wisdom is skillfully living God's way in God's world. So God created this world. And more than ever, it seems that particularly the people in our country are in rebellion against God. This is not new. In Psalm 2, the psalmist said, why do the nations raise against God? Why do they devise in their imagination? They want to cast away God's restraints. And they say, we will not have this man rule over us. And God sits up in the heavens and he laughs and scoffs at them. And he says, I have appointed my king Jesus to rule. And so it's not new that people are in rebellion against God. But what becomes scary is when it becomes more and more blatant, when it becomes more and more visible, when more and more the fist is shaken in the face of God. And so I want you to think about this. The Bible says that unbelievers are hostile to God, that they will not and do not want to submit to God. So understand that in all of this secularization that we're seeing in such a rapid pace, secularization is the removal of religion. It's the removal of the idea of God. This is something that God has said will happen. In Romans chapter 1, as he describes the downward spiral of society that rejects God, there's a verse in Romans 1.25 that says, just as mankind does not see fit to have God in their knowledge any longer, God gives them over to a depraved mind. So in other words, remember the staples, the easy button, men are hitting the delete button. They know there's a God, they know there's a creator, they know there's a right and wrong, they know there's a created order, they know that God has designed us male and female, they know that God has instinctively instituted the institution of marriage and that it is his will that men and women marry and, and raise children. They are raising their fist in rebellion against God and they refuse to allow God into the discussion. Literally, with, with such hatefulness saying we cannot give God a foothold in the door. So understand that that's what's going on. It's not politics. It's a spiritual warfare in which we live. And so the Psalms give us a different way to live, an alternative way, a way in which we look around at a world that's tossed in every direction and we're going, what are they teaching our kids? What are they instituting in our country? And we want to try to separate that from politics as much as possible and say, Let's remember the spiritual components of what's going on and try to live wise in a wayward world. So as we go through chapter 3, we're going to look at three things. The first 12 verses, we're going to learn that God's wisdom involves learning how to trust in a God who loves us and knows what's best for us. Our minds do not always acclimate with God's ways. In fact, God said... As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. So sometimes our thoughts, our ideas are different from God's. And when he commands or warns, it says, I want you to go and 
this direction, there are times where we go, well, that doesn't make sense or that just doesn't feel like the right way. Plus, we have millions of people telling us that's not the way to go. And so we have this choice to make. Psalm chapter 1 says, blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the ungodly. And it's painful to see how many, not only godless people, but how many churches are embracing the counsel of the ungodly. And they're on board with so many of these things that are blatantly against God's word. And so God in his mercy and love teaches us that wisdom involves learning to trust him, a God who loves us and knows what's best for us. So let's look at verses 1 through 12. He says, my son, don't forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. Now, when he speaks of obedience from the heart, we recognize that it's not just an external, okay, fine, what are the rules? Tell your brother you're sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. But rather from the heart, we, we, we want to say, God, teach me the way forgiven disciples are supposed to live. And, and always grounded in this idea that I want to keep his commandments because he first loved me, not because I'm trying to earn his favor. And here he offers us a blessing. Length of days, look at verse 2, years of life and peace they will add to you. Now recognize that Proverbs are not always absolute and unconditional promises. For example, the Bible says, children obey your parents that it may go well with you and you will live long on the earth. So are we to conclude from that that any child that doesn't live long, it's because they didn't obey their parents? Of course not. But these are general principles of life that, that your life will be better as you yield to God. And so now he gives an instruction on how to relate to God and others. A very interesting instruction as we're learning to trust him. He says, do not let kindness and truth leave you. Bind them around your neck and write them on the tablet of your heart. Now, before we talk about what these virtues are, let's just talk about what does he mean by bind them around your neck? Because typically in the Bible, when it talks about retaining God's word, for example, in Deuteronomy 6, it says to parents, these words which I give you this day shall be in your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children. But then he says, I want you to write them on your hands, write them on your doorpost. And in fact, later in the book of Jeremiah, he says, I'll write them on your heart. But this is the only place, the book of Proverbs, where it says, bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Now, again, something as simple as, remember when we used to say, well, if you forget something, you know, tie a, tie a string around your finger. And again, we all know that. We are such forgetful people. Remember, uh, then at one point we, we advanced beyond that. We started writing on our hand. That was the original Palm Pilot. Then, then you remember the Palm Pilot, the, the electronic one? And now we've got cell phones. And is there anybody else beside me who has it in their phone, on their calendar, and you still forget, right? And, and our wives are like, is there, it, just give me strength. So... So somehow we're being invited here by God to diligently 
think about these things on a regular basis. Now, what is it? What he wants us to think about is do not let kindness and truth forsake you. These are two qualities that are most often used of God. The Bible says the Lord God, in a very famous passage in Exodus 34, when, when Moses asked to see God and God revealed himself, God said, the Lord, the Lord God, a merciful and gracious God, I'm slow to anger. And then he says, I'm abounding in these, and then he uses these two words, hesed and emet. I'm abounding in love and faithfulness. So this translation says, do not let kindness, but, but that word here is the word hesed, which is loving kindness. It's a relational word. It's a word that says, be committed and, and loyal and loving to, to other people. And then the second word, while it's sometimes translated faithfulness, it's usually translated truthfulness. So as a general rule, as a Christian, he's saying, be loving and truthful with others. In fact, the book of Ephesians teaches us this, this difficult balance of, of doing this very thing speaking the truth in love. Some of you are really good at speaking the truth. You will blurt it out. No filter. If it comes through your head, it's coming out of your, out of your mouth. And you can justify that. Well, it's true, isn't it? But if it is not seasoned, tempered, and, and molded through love, it can be very damaging. Others of you Sometimes, in, in a misunderstanding of love is love, don't say anything. And that's not love either. So, in a culture where there are so many tinder boxes, so many things that people are talking about, like abortion, same-sex marriage, transgender issues, I want to encourage you to remember this verse. Be both loving and truthful. You can do both. You don't have to exclude either one. We don't have to stand up on a, a soapbox and call everybody a bunch of stupid idiots and common sense is all gone. But we also ought not to just go along with the flow and if that's what everybody says. So he says, if, if you bind these things as, as a lifestyle, look at verse 4, you will find favor and good repute in the sight of God and man. It's interesting, this phrase was used of Jesus. As Jesus grew up, the Bible says, he increased in wisdom and in favor with God and man. It is possible to be a Christian, ready for this, and not be a jerk. You could do that, right? You do not have to be an obnoxious, in-your-face, harsh, critical person, but you also don't have to be a weak, wimpy um, compromiser. So why would I want to increase in favor with God and man? Well, obviously, I want to increase in favor with God. I want to please God. I want to 
I want to walk with God in such a way that my loving Father who has forgiven me is pleased with me, just like he was with my son. This is my son, my beloved son. But also, why would I want to have favor with man? I don't care what people think about me. Well, you should care what people think about you. Not in a fearful way, but the book of Proverbs says a good name is better than great riches. And one of the most effective things about a good reputation is it's the testimony of the gospel. In fact, for any of you men that are aspiring to leadership, the number one quality, it says, he must be above reproach. And then it says, he must even have a good reputation with outsiders. Now, this doesn't mean that your job should be to try to get everyone to like you. Because sometimes, no matter what you do, and sometimes simply because you're a Christian, they won't like you. But Romans 12 says, as much as is possible as lies within you, live peaceably with all men. Let's look at verse 5. Beautiful verse that we all know, but we need to be reminded. Remember we said this section is about trusting in a God who loves us and knows what's best for us. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. Life is so full of complicating decisions, complicating relationships, complicating circumstances with our health, with our kids, with our family, with our country. And a lot of times it's difficult to know exactly what to say, to know exactly what to do. And this is a great verse. And this is not something to be taken tritely. This is something we need to do daily to, to, to turn to the Lord and learn to depend on him instead of relying on our own resources. Solomon said later, the reason I wrote this book is that your trust might be in the Lord. And so the first thing I want to encourage you to realize is this is the heart of what salvation is. Salvation is trusting in the Lord and what he did on the cross with all of your heart. The Bible says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God sent him to die for you and that he rose from the dead, you'll be saved. But it doesn't stop there. It's not now that you trust him, now you got your hell insurance, just go do what you want. I continue to trust him. And that's hard because sometimes he doesn't answer our prayers right away. Some of you are struggling because you're crying out to God. And I understand that. The psalmist said it this way. He said, be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait patiently for the Lord. But one of the problems we do is we take matters in our own hands. And that's what he says, don't lean on your own understanding. One of the first things that you might ask yourself is, what do you do when a problem comes? Do you talk to God first? Or do you immediately pick up the phone and call mom or call your cousin? Or do you immediately, you know, try to find as many people who could listen to your problems? And then what I have found, especially for those of us who are trying to persuade, as particularly our children, how we, 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 we try to help God out. You know, we, we, we leave the Christian radio on that station in their car. We, we leave that little booklet about Jesus on that table where they'll see it. We arrange for that 
friend to drop by at just the right time. And, and, and while there's nothing wrong with these things, sometimes we have to recognize that God not only doesn't need our help, but sometimes we're working against his purposes when we're always trying to solve it our way. In fact, there's a verse in Exodus where Moses was at the edge of the Red Sea and the Bible says, the Lord will fight for you when you keep silent. So remember, there are times that we have to just give it over to the Lord. Nothing wrong with talking to friends, but not trying to, to get your head on that hamster wheel and lay awake at night trying to figure out, if only I do this, if, if I do the love dare, then my, my spouse will come back. If I do this, my kid will do that. Trust in the Lord. Just learn to, 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 to get into the habit. I like to fish. And there's a verse in 1 Peter 5 that says, cast your burdens on the Lord. But have you ever fished with a kid? You know what happens after that. That thing isn't even on the bottom yet where he's bringing it back. I think I got one. I think I got one. You're like, if I'm casting my burdens on the Lord, try not to keep reeling them in and carrying them again. I saw an interesting illustration once. It, it showed a picture of a man who was walking with a heavy burden. He was carrying like this huge sack. It, it wasn't Pilgrim's Progress, but he has this huge sack of burden. And as he's walking along, uh, uh, a farmer's cart, an old flat farmer's cart pulls up being pulled by a couple of horses and the farmer invites him to just jump on this flat cart. And so he, he climbs up onto the cart to get a ride, and while he's standing on the cart, he's still holding the bag, right? <laughs> it's like, I think you're missing the point. Give your burdens to the Lord. Let them go. Trust the Lord. Doesn't mean there aren't times that he's asking you to do something, but, but let's remember that that's the big picture. Now, one of the reasons that we do that is because we think we got it. Verse 7, do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It's never right to sin to solve a problem. Better to suffer than to sin. But in the midst of trying to solve our problems, sometimes we need to take advice from others. The Bible says a fool is wiser in his own eyes than seven other people who can give a good answer. So don't be afraid to ask godly advice from others, realizing that maybe you don't know as much as you thought. And maybe that friend's going to say, you know what? Your wife is right. You are too harsh. Or your husband's right. You are too critical. Or your boss is right. You did do it the wrong way. Like learning to humbly accept correction. Because he says, it will be healing to your body and refreshment to your bones. And then interestingly, in the trusting of our, of our Lord, one of the things he touches on is our stuff. Remember we talked about giving not that long ago? We talked about the giving ladder. And I haven't asked this, but I'm curious how many of you have started to give more regularly and more consistently and more faithfully and more proportionately simply because you're like, wow, this is what God commands in his word. So he says, honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first fruits of all of your produce. Now, as a Christian, that goes against to the world, trusting the Lord. How am I going to acquire stuff if I give stuff away? Or I earn this with my hard work 
why should I give anything to God? And God's saying, look, a life of trust includes giving to God first. So let me remind you, if you're Christian, whenever you get some income, start with giving to God. That's an act of trusting Him. And as you do that, look at His promise. So your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. Now, those of us who parent know that at times, it can, well, at times, that's an understatement. It can be difficult at times, many times. And one of the things that's difficult is correcting our children. Some parents just give up on correcting their children. They just, they just find that the, the pushback is too much. So after counting to three, if Johnny doesn't pick up his blocks, they just pick them up. Pastor, I don't know what to do. I put my kid in bed. He gets right out of bed. I don't know what to do. Nobody likes to be corrected, but we are taught in the Bible that we are to correct our children, to discipline them. But we also have to remember that our God corrects and disciplines us. Remember, uh, uh, and I've, you've heard me share this story before. One time when I was correcting my daughter as a, as a youngster, I had to, I didn't have to, but I chose to give her a spanking, and I hope none of you will call the police and because that's not against the law, but it wasn't a wild, angry beating. And I know, again, this would be a perfect example of are you going to trust in the Lord and what the Scriptures say, or are you going to lean on human reason? And I'd be happy to talk to you about this. I know some of you are like, spanking will turn your child into a demon or whatever, and blah, blah, blah. And many of you have been abused by an angry harsh parrot, and my heart goes out to you. But in the right context, it's not inappropriate to correct a child. But I remember saying to my daughter after correcting her, now, do you understand why I did that? And she goes, would you please leave? That's really the essence of what this verse is saying. My son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe his reproof. For whom the Lord loves, he reproves, even as a father the son in whom he delights. Remember that wonderful phrase, God loves you just as you are? He loves you just as you are. But I gotta tell you the second half of that. He loves you too much to leave you that way because God saves us in order to change us into the image of Christ. He wants to transform us. He gives us a new heart. He gives us the Bible. He gives us the body of Christ, a community to point us to the path of becoming a follower, an obedient disciple who prays and worships and lives for him and, 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 and does the right thing and is generous and serves in the church. But when we get off the path, the Lord is very patient, but we don't want to confuse his patience for his absence. God does discipline his children. And that correction can involve a health issue, like 1 Corinthians 11, it says, many of you are weak and sick, and some of you sleep because of their blatant sin during the communion and their disregard of others. David lost a baby because of his flagrant adultery. And sometimes God will take away our joy as an act of discipline. Not always. Sometimes it's a trial. God let Job go through great suffering, and it wasn't because Job was doing anything bad. But usually when the Lord is disciplining in you, you know it because you know you're being disobedient. 
and you know you're digging in your heels and you're going, I'm not going to stop that. And God's going, I love you and he's going to speak to you. If you're a child of God, I promise you this, God will discipline you. Hebrews 12 says God disciplines all his children. If you're without discipline, you're not a child of God. So if you can sin comfortably, boldly, continually, flagrantly, and nothing ever happens, and you're as happy as a lark, and as long as you don't get caught, everything's good, that should concern you. Because the Bible says God disciplines all of his children. And when he disciplines us, it says, no discipline seems joyful, but sorrowful. But afterward, if we're trained and we listen and we say, okay, Lord, I'll trust you with my heart. I'll start doing it your way. Then he says, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. So if God has been tweaking you and saying, I love you, change in this behavior. Don't despise it, but accept it and realize that it's out of love. Those whom the Lord loves. Not because he's mad at you, not because he's got lightning bolts, it's because he loves you. Now, the next section we're going to move through quickly because it's primarily about the, the benefits of wisdom. So the first part was learning to trust a God who knows what's best for us. The second section is primarily not about trusting God. It's about the, the lifelong benefits of, of pursuing wisdom. How blessed is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding. Think about that phrase, finds wisdom. It shouldn't quite be thought of as the pot of gold. You know what I mean? In other words, you don't just one day go, I found wisdom. But rather, it's, it's as one commentary said, in a more fundamental sense, wisdom is not a content that is accumulated. It's more of an attitude or a state of mind. So a person who finds wisdom, who says, I want to live God's way in God's world, has an attitude that says, I want to learn to trust him and I want to learn to follow him and I want to learn to live skillfully. Look at the benefits. Its profit is better than silver and gold. It's more precious than jewels. Nothing you desire compares to her. Long life is in her right hand and her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are pleasant and her paths are peace. And then he says something very interesting. She is a tree of life to all those who take hold of her, and happy are all those who hold fast. Now, I'm assuming his reference to the tree of life is somewhat of, a, of an allusion to eternal life. You don't receive eternal life by wising up. You receive eternal life by receiving the attitude that says, I need to put my trust in Christ. And as I realize God enabled me to do that and I trust him, it leads me to the gift of eternal life. And then the psalmist reminds us that God used wisdom to establish the earth. And so we should seek his wisdom. The Lord by wisdom founded the earth. By understanding he established the heavens. By his knowledge the deeps were broken up and the skies dripped with dew. So don't let them depart from your sight. There'll be life to your soul and adornment to your neck. You'll walk securely and your foot won't stumble. When you lie down, you won't be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. There are so many people that are so afraid in life. But if you're trusting in the Lord, you've given yourself to Christ, and you're trusting that he loves you, he gave his son for you, look what it says. 
Do not be afraid of sudden fear of the onslaught of the wicked when it comes, for the Lord will be your confidence and will keep your foot from being caught. Last thing we're going to note here is that wisdom brings blessing to others. As we start to walk with God, we realize it's not about us. We're not just becoming a disciple. We then want to disciple others. We want to bless other people. This is the heart of what Jesus said. This great commandment, love God and love others. So let's quickly look at these last few verses about relationships with others. He says in verse 27, Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. That has all kinds of applications. Do not withhold good, whether it's a, a good word, whether it's a, an encouragement, whether it's a bonus, whether it's a, a reward, whether it's giving back something that you found that you know who it belongs to. And then he says, be generous. Don't say to your neighbor, go and come back and tomorrow I will give it when you have it with you. Now notice how he's going to talk about the neighbor. Do not devise harm against your neighbor while he lives in security beside you. Don't contend with a man without cause if he's done you no harm. And don't envy a man of violence. And do not choose any of his ways. For the crooked man is an abomination to the Lord. Now, I know people don't want to hear that. But I want you to think about this. There are many things that are being taught in this country that are devious, crooked, and abominable. And we ought not to be afraid to believe that and to say that and to say it's not because we're so good. We ourselves were much once disobedient and deceived. But there is truth. The Bible says, woe to those who call good evil and evil good. And, and when, when we're telling our children, pick your, pick your gender and these type of things, these things in the sight of God are abominable. But that doesn't mean God hates them. It means he offers the freedom of forgiveness to anybody. And, and it's not just these things that cause people to go to hell. It's self-righteousness. It's pride. There are many things. But God's intimate with the upright. The curse of the Lord is on the house of the wicked. He blesses the dwelling of the righteous. He scoffs at scoffers, and he gives grace to the afflicted. The wise will inherit honor, but fools will display dishonor. I wanted to close by reading two quotes. First of all, when it comes to neighbors, my wife shared something with me that I thought was pretty cool. She was reading World Magazine, and there was a, a, a fella named Dave Burton, who's a deacon in his church, and he wrote a, a, just a little one-page article called Getting to Know You, Being a Neighbor is More Than a Condition, It's a Calling. And in his story, he says, For years, I thought of myself as a good neighbor. No loud parties. My yard was in good shape. But in the summer of 2019, I realized I set the bar too low after the pastor preached about the art of neighboring. He said, I only knew the names of two of my neighbors. And so we decided, and, and, and I'm not suggesting that this is the best way to do it. We decided to go around armed with chocolate chip cookies, although you can come to my house. No, don't do that. <laughs> um, and, and then we began trying to turn our ideas into actions. We had a driveway 
chat time. Neighbors brought lawn chairs once a month during the summer to a designated driveway chat to talk. Now, frankly, I don't think that would probably work in our culture if you went to your neighbor and said, hey, you want to come over for a driveway chat? But the thing that stood out to me is that he began to get to know his neighbors and build relationships. And that's how people come to the Lord. They don't come normally through strangers. They come through friends and family members and neighbors. So build relationships. We're having some neighbors over for dinner. Frequently, it'll come out of that. He said, one day, one of the neighbors said, hey, you're a man of prayer. Would you pray for me about that? So as we close, remember that a life of wisdom is a life that thinks about others. But ultimately, I want to go back to, to what we've been saying all along about the book of Proverbs, and that is, it ultimately is pointing us to Jesus in the gospel. Alistair Begg has a book called Pray Big. And as we think about wisdom in a wayward world, listen to this quote. He said, when the spiritual hub of my life is solid, then the practical spokes will be strong. So the spiritual hub would be relating to Jesus on a daily basis, trying to live his way in, in this world. He said, we tend to live as if and pray as if what we need most is help with this practical issue or that specific life problem. In other words, here's my problem. I got to fix that. He says, and we all have particular situations that need divine help. We need divine transformation. But as we grow in our appreciation of the gospel, our lives will change to reflect the gospel. The point is this, he says, your spiritual belief system and your view of God drives your political actions. So when Paul wrote to the Ephesians, he didn't say, you need someone to sort out the political and civil structures of your city. You need to get some new laws on the statute books that ban the riots you've been subjected to and the occult worship. No, Paul says to them, what we really need is the truth of the gospel. What we really need is to know Jesus. We need to know with assurance that Jesus is ours. And we need to know that what is true of us now and, and be aware that every day when all things are wrapped up, Paul says, I want you to stand firm in the truth. So ultimately, he says, every problem with our children, every problem with our health, every problem, ultimately, we take it to Christ. The hub is the gospel. So let's close in prayer and ask God to help us to stay focused on Christ, focused on the wisdom of the gospel, and then living by faith in a community where we're helping each other. And if you haven't yet come to Christ, as Dom said, there's condemnation awaiting you unless you're willing to turn and put your faith and trust in Jesus. And we're here to help you. Let us know if we can. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for letting us hear from you and be encouraged from you to trust you, to obey you, and to live a life of gratitude. Thank you that we could celebrate communion today, remembering that we are completely forgiven and loved by a God who will never break his promise. Thank you that at the end, we will inherit eternal life. But in between this time, Lord, give us a desire to love one another. We all have problems that we're bringing to the Lord. Help us to trust you and not lean on our own understanding.
Help us to do good to others and share generously, getting to know our neighbors. Help us not to despise your correction and help us to truly be a part of a caring, Christ-centered community and always take all of our problems to Jesus through the gospel. Thank you for this fellowship. Thank you for these wonderful brothers and sisters as we're growing together. And we pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.